You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. You can have a seat there where you are, and if you want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3, that would be a help. Romans chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And as you're doing that, let me just say a couple of things. If you are a first-time visitor this morning, thank you so much for being here. We're so honored that you've chosen to make this your place um, where you are worshiping this morning. And uh, we want to do a good job of stewarding your visit well and serving you well. And so one way that you could help us do that is if you'll make sure you take that card that is under your seat. It's a little black card on one side, red on the other. If you'll make sure you take that card, fill it out during the service. At the end of the service, we'll pass around a little offering basket. If you'll make sure you put that card all filled out in that basket, we'll follow up with you this week. We'll send you some things in the mail that will make that worth your while. So if you'll do that for us, that would greatly help us serve you and steward your visit um, really well. So it is Easter, and happy Easter to you. I hope um, that your day is going great, and I hope it is going to be a great day for you. And, you know, when I think about Easter, um, I can't help but think about a quote from a guy named John Stott, one of my favorite theologians of the last century. And He said, Christianity at its essence is a resurrection religion. And just think about that. It's a resurrection religion. He goes on to say, if you remove the resurrection, Christianity is destroyed. And Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's point, one of Paul's points is, if you take out the resurrection, this whole thing is in vain. Without the resurrection, this should be all of our approaches to life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Try to eke out as much joy as you can in this life because it's all you've got. Because that's his whole approach. And he's saying that if, if, we're, if the resurrection disappears, this whole thing collapses. I, I love how one pastor said it. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, nothing else really matters. And that is true for us. The resurrection is that important. If the resurrection really did happen, it opens us up to this reality. This is not all there is to life. There is more to life than this little life. This little life could probably better be described as pre-life because the best is yet to come if the resurrection is real. The resurrection opens us up to the reality that Satan, sin, and death do not get the last word. God gets the last word. The resurrection opens us up to all of that. And because of that, and in light of that, Christians have celebrated this day, um, Easter, the resurrection day, for the last 20 centuries. And I want to celebrate it with you this morning by considering Three verses. There are three very honest verses out of Romans 3. There are three very hope-giving verses. But I want to take three verses and work through these three verses with you. This is Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. And we're actually going to pick up just the very last couple of words out of verse 22. The end of verse 22 starts like this. For there is no distinction... So we're all in the same category, according to Paul here in Romans 3. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is God's word. So this sermon is going is to deal with these three verses, and in particular, one word out of these three verses. It's the third word in verse 24. You might underline this one, circle that little word there in your text. It's the word justified. The word justified. This entire sermon is going to revolve around that one word, justified. And let me start by saying this about that word, Justified. There's a deep ache in the heart of every human being to be justified. It's in the heart of every human being wants this word. And the best way I could kind of summarize what it means to be justified, it's right next to the word to be righteous in the Bible. That sense of righteousness, it's right, those words are kind of brother and sister in the Bible. They're kin to one another. To be justified is this idea of you have been fully known all the way down to the dirty depths of you. You have been fully known, and at the same time, you are still fully loved, cherished, accepted, approved, and delighted in. You're fully known on one hand, and fully delighted and accepted on on the other. 
It's those two things coming together. That's the word justified. And there is an ache for that in the heart of every human being. Every human being. See, when you, when you read the Bible, I always like just to make sure we're, we're reading it with the correct assumption. Because it's really easy to hear the Bible and to read the Bible thinking that the Bible is just not asking and answering the questions that I'm concerned about. So we come to a text like this and we get to a word like this in verse 24, this idea of being justified. And we think this, I, I don't even use the word justified. I don't care about the word justified. See, see, the Bible is not asking and answering the questions I'm concerned about. The, the Bible, it's kind of locked into this culture of a, of a bygone age and it's not relevant today. So let me just try to correct that assumption by alerting us to this. The Bible is deeply concerned about the questions that you're deeply concerned about. Now I want you just to hear that. The Bible is deeply concerned about those questions that you're deeply concerned about. And this one word in verse 24, this idea of justification, this is a classic case in point of this reality. You're concerned about justification just like I'm concerned about it. And it may not work its way into our everyday vocabulary, but it works our, its way into our everyday living. Those justification questions follow you everywhere you go. You take justifica justification questions with you to work on Monday morning. You bring those same questions into your home that night. You bring in th those same questions into your kind of peer groups, into your set of friends. You take them everywhere with you. You take them when you're doing your hobby thing. You brought them in with you this morning. Justification questions are universal human questions. Questions like this. Am I really okay? Like seriously, when I look myself in the mirror, am I really okay? Do I measure up? Am I really good enough? Like if people saw all the way into my heart, all the way into my soul, down to the dirty depths of me, what would they say about me? Those are all justification questions. And behind those is the mega questions about how we're relating to God. What does God think of me? In light of all the things that I have done and left undone, what is God gonna do with me? In light of all the brokenness that's in me, greed, self-righteousness, immorality, same gender attraction, and a lot of all the brokenness that makes up just my inner self. In light of all of that, what is God gonna do to me one day? Those are all justification questions and they are questions that every one of us in this room is deeply concerned about. In a lot of ways, our whole life is driven by these sort of questions. There's a deep ache in the heart of every human being to be justified. And listen to this, the reason that you long for it is because you were made for it. The, the reason you have this deep ache and longing in you for justification to be fully uh, you know, known and fully loved and accepted and cherished, the reason you long for that is because you were made for that. One of the things that I love about the Bible is unlike any other book, it explains us. It, it makes sense of your life and my life. And in particular, with these justification questions that we're all asking, if you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it does a great job of explaining why it is that we're all so deeply concerned with these justification sort of questions. So let me just kind of work through the first three chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, we find God creating the universe. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He, he has prepared a garden for our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he puts our first parents in the garden. And our first parents in the garden are living with God. God has fully known them all the way down to the depths of their soul and pronounced over their lives accepted, approved, presentable. He has given them his yes. The most influential voice in the universe has looked at them and said, I know you and I delight in you. And they were hardwired for that. That deep longing was finding its fulfillment in God where it should be fulfilled. But then you get to verse, or chapter three, and this is where everything falls apart in the Bible. In chapter three, our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. They decided they wanted to be their own God in their life. And in that moment, things broke inside of them. Now it's really interesting watching how the Bible describes what happens in them at the occurrence of this first sin. 
The Bible, the first thing it says after they sinned against God, after they ate the forbidden fruit, it says that their eyes were open and they realized, for the very first time in their life, they had this feeling. They realized they were naked. That they realized that there is something now that is unpresentable about them. That they realized for the first time there is something deeply wrong in them. They're realizing that because of that, that first sin, eating the forbidden fruit, they're realizing that now when God looks at them, the verdict has changed over their life. The most influential voice in the universe is no longer giving them a yes, but now because of their sin, the verdict has changed and they now hear a no from God. Rather than accepted, now they have heard a rejection from God. For the first time, they are feeling that sense of inadequacy. They are looking at their lives and here's what they know. We've got to cover ourselves. The first time they ever felt that. Genesis 1 and 2, they never felt that feeling of nakedness because there was nothing to hide. They sin against God and now they feel that sense of we've got to run and hide ourselves. We've got to find something to cover ourselves. We are naked and exposed here. And it's really interesting, just reading forward in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. It says their eyes were open, they realized they were naked. And here's the first thing our first parents did when they felt that feeling of a lack of presentability, a lack of approval. It says that they ran off and they got to work and they began making fig leaves for themselves so that they could cover themselves so that they could hide that sense of insecurity and that sense of that lost you know, approval and presentability. They instantly got to work to patch up some righteousness, to patch up a new set of like presentability apart from God. Okay, now let's just linger here for a moment. This is explaining so much about how you and I operate, about how you and I are living, about what is driving our lives. If we're honest with ourselves and others, and that's hard to do, but if we do that, if we get really honest with ourselves, there is not one person in this room who is not well acquainted with that sin-created nakedness. That same feeling that our first parents had. There's not one of us in the room that, that if we said, hey, let's put your life on the video screen for a, less, a second. Let's track everything you've ever done. All your good and all your bad. Let's look at every little bit of it. There's not a one of us in this room that wouldn't be terrified in that moment. We've all felt that same feeling, that Genesis 3 feeling of nakedness and, and unpresentability because of our sin. We've all felt that sense of we've got to have something to cover us. We've all felt that insecurity of, if people know me long enough and well enough, they're not going to like me because there is a lot in me not to like. We all know if people see us long enough and deep enough that they're going to see much more shadow and much less substance. We all know that. If you're honest with yourself, if you look yourself in the mirror and ask hard questions about who you are and who you're not, you will become well acquainted with that sense of, I am naked and in need of covering. And here's the thing, just like our first parents, the default response to that feeling of that lack of presentability, what was lost in the garden because of sin, our default, the human kind of default reaction to that feeling is to put our head down and get to work patching together our presentability. The Bible would use the word righteousness or justification. We put our head down and we get to work finding something to cover us. Some fig leaf that we can drape over our lives so that people can't see us down to our depths. This is what you're doing. It's what I'm doing. It's what the world is doing. We all feel that sense of a lack of presentability. Those are justification questions. And we are all asking the question, how are we going to prove to ourselves and to other people that we're really okay? That we really do measure up? that we really are all right. This is driving us. We brought those sort of things into this room. Simply put, we're all on a quest to regain the presentability we lost in the garden. I love how one old theologian put it. He called this the disinherited prince syndrome. And here's what he's saying in that. That we, human beings, all of us, it's a universal human being thing. We all have a faint remembrance that we were princes of God that we were in the garden and we were an accepted heir of all that is God's, that God looked at us and pronounced over our life, accepted, delighted in, loved. And that's even with him knowing us. 
We all have a deep sense of that. And he's saying, this is what the disinherited prince syndrome is. After we lost that post-Genesis 3 and because of our sin, we have all gone on a quest, a desperate search to regain that presentability that we lost. We've all had this syndrome of trying to find something that will cover our life. Like a disinherited prince, we're trying to figure out how are we going to get that sense of acceptance, that sense of love and delight back into our lives. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to these justification questions that are a deep ache in all of us, we long for them because we were made for them. These justification questions work themselves out everywhere in our life. And listen to this. They start really early in all of our lives. So we have a basketball team that makes up our kids. Like enough for a whole basketball team is in our house. And all these guys are little. They're seven and down. And it's so interesting to watch those justification questions work themselves out really early. So we've got a five-year-old. He played soccer yesterday. And as soon as he came off the soccer field, do you know the first thing he did? He ran over to me and said, Daddy, didn't I do awesome out there? Now, what is that? That is a surface rumbling of this deep ache for justification. We have a four-year-old in our house who is trying to learn how to hula hoop. She can't hula hoop. She can't do it. She'll try for like 10 times in a row and she like spins it but doesn't move. So it just falls down. And after like 10 tries, this is like clockwork. She'll come over at the end of 10 tries of failing at the hula hoop and come over to me and say, but daddy, aren't I still awesome? And I'm like, yes, you're still awesome. Independent of your hula hoop ability. Yes, you are. But what is that? That is a surface rumbling of that deep ache for presentability. That deep ache we all have, we know something's wrong. And we're looking for something to cover what's wrong in our life. It's that deep ache of presentability working itself really early, you know, working itself out really early on in our life. Now, here's the truth for all of us in the room. Those questions that start really early, they have a tendency to stay with us. I don't know how many um, men, I have, grown men, I have sat across the table from who through tears express that they have lived their entire life to hear their dad say, I love you. What is that? That is the deep ache for justification working itself out in an adult. It's those same questions that we start really early asking, aren't I great? And did I do awesome? It's those same questions staying with us throughout our life. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the movie, uh, the movie Chariot of Fire. Y'all know the movie? Chariots of Fire. It's the, uh, the story of Eric Little. And Eric Little is a British sprinter. He, he ends up winning an Olympic gold medal as a sprinter. And he ends up giving all of that fame and glory away to go and become a missionary in China. So it kind of tells his story. But his counterpart in the movie is a guy named Harold Abrams. And uh, Harold also is a, a British you know, sprinter. And he also wins a gold medal um, in track. And right before the big race, I want you to listen to what Harold Abrams says. He's describing this big moment in his life and what's about to go down. This, this, you know, 100 meter dash he's about to run. He's describing this moment. Listen to how he says it. Right before the race, he says this. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again, out there on the track again, about to run again. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide. That's a track lane, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Now, what is happening right there? It's that same little ache in the heart of a four-year-old saying, Daddy, aren't I great? It's the same ache working itself out in a 25-year-old's life. He's looking at the world and he's trying to figure out, what can I do to hear from the world, to hear that the verdict over my life be, you're great, you're awesome, you're accepted, delighted and loved. We know you and yet we still love you and cherish you and delight in you. See, when you think about what's happening in this moment of his life, it's that deep ache for justification. It's a surface rumbling of that happening right here. It's that easing itself up to the surface. See, when when Harold Abrams is thinking about track, here's what he is doing with a track. Here's what he's doing with a race. He knows there is an innate knowledge in him of, I lack presentability. 
there is something deeply wrong in me. There is something deeply off in me. I know that down there. When I'm honest, I can feel that down there. And to deal with that lack of presentability, here's what he's saying. I've got to find something. I've got to work at something to cover that. So he scans the possible options and he lands on track is going to be the thing that I'm going to use to regain that sense of presentability. So I am going to slave over this track. See, he's not running. He's not running because he enjoys competition. He's not running um, because he enjoys racing. He is running for his life. He is running to regain his presentability. And he even uses the word justified to describe it. He is running to give himself a sense of justification, to give himself a sense of, see, I told you I measured up, to try to convince himself and the world that he really is an okay person. He is running to cover that brokenness that he knows oh too well is in him. That's why he's running. Now, here's the thing. Let's just make this really personal here in the room. Your thing may not be track, but you have a thing. Every human being has a thing. We can't live without a thing. We can't, you will not live another day unless you have something in your life that you are looking to and saying, this is where my righteousness will come from. This is where that lost sense of presentability, this is where I'm going to regain it. You cannot live without that. So you've got something. We all brought something in here that we're answering the justification question with. Am I okay? Answer that question. And you're gonna answer yes or no based on something. Whatever that thing is, is what you're looking to your justification for. Now, for some of us, that may be work. You know, going back to last week, we talked about the Sabbath last week and the need for that six-in-one rhythm of rest. See, the reason some of us can't do a six-in-one rhythm, the reason some of us cannot just stop from our labor and rest is because we are working for our lives. We are working to regain that sense of presentability. Maybe for you, it's money and possessions. If I can just earn enough, or if I can just have enough things, see, I'll show the world that I'm a someone. I'll prove to them that, that my existence is justified, that I'm really okay and that I really do measure up. For some of us, we looked for parenting to do that, our family, to have a nice, tidy, everyone kind of in the bounds family. I mean, there's a reason why there is such a thing as competitive parenting in our culture. I mean, what's happening there? Moms and dads are looking to their kids for their sense of justification, for their sense of what is gonna make me feel okay about my life. See, we all have something we're looking to. The next time you're in a little, like a tiff with a person, like you have a disagreement, and you just can't let it go. You, you have to win the argument before you can let it go. I mean, ask yourself the question, why do you have to win the argument? And do you know what that is, the reason for, for that for many of us? We have to be right in this argument to cover our deep sense of wrong inside of us. That's why we have, it's, it's a justification issue. We are arguing for our life. That's why. To, to give people and ourselves a sense of, see, we're really okay. We really do measure up. See, we're all looking to something for that. The question is, what are you looking to it for? See, there's a deep ache inside of every human being to be justified. And we all have that deep longing because we were made for it. Now, hear this last little phrase here. This is really important that you get a sense of this this morning. Here's the problem is there's no amount of money, of fame, or accomplishment that will ease that ache. There is no amount of your good doing that's going to ease it. You're not gonna earn enough money. You're not gonna make enough money. You're not gonna spend enough money. You're not gonna accomplish enough at work to ever ease that ache in you, to, for it to ever be a, like kind of a satisfactory covering for your lack of presentability. That will never happen. Those things will never ease the ache in you. They will never provide an appropriate covering for your life. If you need help in believing that, let's let the great theologian Madonna teach us. <laughs> Look up at the screen. <clears throat> Listen to what she says. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Now, let's just use biblical language here, Genesis 3 language. She's looking at her life and she is saying, 
I know there is a sense of nakedness in me. I have lost my sense of of presentability. I do not feel adequate. We all know that. If we'll take the time to look at ourselves and be honest with ourselves, you know the same thing about you. You know that when you look at yourself, there is a feeling of inadequacy, of lost presentability, of something is not okay in me. I don't want people to see what's not okay in me. We all know that. And she's saying that her iron will has been used to deal with this sort of inadequacy. She goes on to say this. I push past one spell of it, this feeling of inadequacy, and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. See, you see what she's saying? She's saying that, that I feel inadequate and then I work, I work, I work. And for a second, I feel like I've actually got kind of the sense of adequacy that I want. And then I feel inadequate all over again. And she says, this happens again and again. She goes on, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, of just being inadequate, exposed, naked. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. See, she, what I love about her is she's actually in tune with the driver in her life. And that's always pushing me and pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. I still have to keep reconvincing myself and other people that I'm really okay. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And listen, this is a person who has earned more than you probably will ever earn, who has accomplished more than you have ever accomplished. And she's saying, here, here's the, at the end of the day, it has not covered my deep sense of inadequacy, my deep sense of nakedness. It's never, it's never eased the ache in my heart there. So here's the question of the morning. What do we do with these justification questions? We all have them. Man, am I really okay? Do I really measure up? We all have that deep sense of nakedness and that lost presentability. The question is, what do we do with those questions? Romans 3 shows us the two options. Here are the two options that that we can take, the two places that we can take our justification questions. Am I okay? Do I measure up? Two places we can take it. Here's place number one. We can depend on our own works. We can depend on our own works to try to patch together a sense of presentability. You might call this self-justification. That when we're looking and, and, you know, at these justification questions, that we're answering what's going to make me okay by what I can do. It's self-justification. How am I going to regain that lost sense of presentability? How am I going to cover that nakedness and inadequacy that I feel deep in my bones? And we're answering all of those questions by, just like our first parents did, let's put our head down, ignore God, and let's get about the work of of getting ourselves presentable. Let's get about the work of patching together a new presentability apart from God. This is one way that we can, one place that we can take our justification questions. Now, in thinking about this, it is really important that we see there's two ways for this to play out. This idea of self-justification, of what am I going to do to make, you know, to, to get a sense of I'm okay, The default human response is put your head down and you get about doing something to make you feel okay. And there's two ways for this to play out. There is a secular way and a religious way. Let's take the secular way first. There's a secular way for this to play out. Here's the secular way for this, depending on your own works, to to work itself out. The secular way is this, this way of intentionally leaving God out of our work to cover that deep sense of unpresentability. So we're working to cover that deep sense of of insecurity and inadequacy, but we're intentionally leaving God out of the equation as we do it. Think Madonna here. See, Madonna is not saying, hey, uh, I'm gonna kind of baptize everything I'm doing in Jesus. I'm gonna kind of put that as the heading over my life as I work to kind of cover that sense of inadequacy. She's not doing that. She's, She's just signed with saying, I'm not doing the God thing. I'm just trying to figure out how am I gonna kind of regain that sense of presentability. So she's going to work for it. She's going to, you know, she's going to try to accomplish more for it. She's going to try to make more music, more movies for it. This is going to be her kind of way of going about it. I'm going to shock the world again, and I'm going to get that sense of presentability. So it's, it's divorced from all thoughts of, of God. Okay, so that, that's the secular way. 
It's working for that apart from God, intentionally leaving God out. But there's also a religious way of doing the exact same thing. Here's the religious way of doing it. It's intentionally inviting God into our work to cover that deep sense of inadequacy. So where Madonna is saying, listen, I don't care about God, I'm just doing it. There is another way of doing it over here. And don't think Madonna for this one. Think the religious leaders are Pharisees in the Bible. Think of the most moral person you know. There's a way of doing it like that. There's a way of doing it where we're saying, God, I want you right here by my side, but here's what I'm going to do. I am still gonna be the one who is working for my righteousness. I'm still gonna be the one who is trying to patch together my sense of presentability. I'm not gonna use a shock the world moment over here like Madonna. I'm gonna use prayer and Bible reading and fasting and preaching and serving in the church and coming on Easter. I'm going to use that to patch together my righteousness. See, on the surface, they look so much different. If you look at a very moral person and you look at Madonna, you're like, dude, they're living two different lives. Come on, how could they be the same? But if you get down under the surface of their life, here's the thing. They are both doing the exact same thing. They're just using two different tools to do it. She's using immorality to do it. The religious person is using morality to do it. But they're both working for their own sense of presentability. Their own working, they're both working for their own sense of how am I going to, to cover the nakedness and inadequacy that I feel? They're both answering the question the same way. I'm going to do it by working for it, by depending on my own works. Now, I want to linger over this for just a moment, especially over this religious way of trying to cover that lack of presentability. Because I think a lot of us need to develop eyes for what this looks like in our lives. It is very important that you get a sense of, I can use morality, I can use a lot of Christian-y sort of things in an attempt to patch up my own righteousness with my works. You know, a, a lot of my favorite people in church history, the moment of their conversion centered on them being very religious and realizing they're using their, all their little religiously things they're doing, they're using all of that as kind of a works-based righteousness. They're using all that to patch up a sense of presentability. Martin Luther, that's his story. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress outside of the Bible, the most widely read Christian book, he did the same thing. He, the, the moment of his conversion centered around him realizing, I'm doing all of these churchy type things, religiously type things, but I'm doing all of them to cover that sense of inadequacy, to build my sense of righteousness in my life. And let me give you one example of this. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 1700s to the Native Americans. He died before his 30th birthday, and he died in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is probably the best theologian America has had thus far. He dies in Jonathan Edwards' home. Jonathan Edwards takes his diary, his journals, publishes those, and they become an instant classic. Now listen to how David Brainerd describes his conversion. This is very, very important. You get a sense of this. It'll be on the screen for you. He says it like this. When I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I even thought I must be very seriously religious because I considered entering the ministry. I had a very good outside. In other words, I was a very moral, good behavior guy on the outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties. I thought that through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps toward heaven. I told myself, God must accept you because, because look at, at how wholehearted you, wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. But the more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved God. One night I remember in particular, when I was walking alone, I saw it was totally impossible for me to answer the demand of God's law and do anything toward delivering myself. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was not worshiping God, but using God. Then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind, not by my own contrivances or my own working, but entirely by the working or the righteousness of Christ. I felt myself in a new world and everything about me appeared with a different aspect from before. Now, Selah over that, you see what he's saying? 
He's saying, man, I, I spent my entire life depending on my good works, even works in ministry, to patch together a righteousness. And the moment that God saved me was the moment I realized that's what I was doing and I repented of my righteous deeds being the thing that I was kind of patching together my presentability with. That's when I got saved. That's when God rescued and redeemed me. And I just can't help but think there's not a lot of us in the room who are in the same boat. We have been around churchy type things for a long time. And the truth is our Bible reading, our praying, our fasting, our serving, our going to church, all of these things have been in a quest to answer that question of how am I going to be okay? And we're using these very moral and even things the Bible would say do to patch together our sense of okayness. Now here's the thing. Here's where Romans 3 comes in. Romans 3 is addressing that question. How are you going to be justified? What are you going to depend on for your justification? And Romans 3 is looking at you and I and all of us who the default mode to cover our lack of presentability is to get to work to try it. It's looking at all of us. And here's the one word summary of Romans 3 to all of our works righteousness. For all of us who are trying to work for our presentability, here's the one word summary. God is looking at us in Romans 3 and saying this, enough of that. Enough of trying to do enough to cover your unpresentability. Enough of trying to do enough to kind of patch together your righteousness. Enough of trying to do enough to gain your acceptance before me. God is looking at us and saying, you cannot do enough. You cannot do enough to, gain your, to regain your, your lack of presentability. You cannot do enough. See, Romans 3, 1 through 22 is painting for us in vivid detail how deep the brokenness and inadequacy in us goes. It's painting that for us. It, it, kind of the climatic point of that is in verse 23 where God looks at us in Romans 3, 23 and says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, your brokenness runs so deep that no amount of good works can ever work yourself out of it. There will never be enough good doing of yours to regain that presentability. It is impossible. To borrow an illustration from Greek mythology, do you remember the guy named Syphysis? He was an old king of Corinth, and he was um, punished for his deceitfulness. And his sentence for his deceitfulness was to take this massive boulder and every day take this boulder and try to roll that boulder up this massive hill. And every day when he would finish, he would wake up the next day and find that boulder sitting at the bottom of the hill again. And he would pick that boulder back up and he would have to roll it to the top of the hill again. He wakes up the next day again, the next day again, and he does that for the rest of his life. That is exactly what you, depending on your works, is like. It's you taking the big boulder of your doing and you trying to roll it up the hill to show yourself, God, and others, see, I'm okay. And if that's your mode of trying to be okay, here's what you're gonna find. Every day the boulder's gonna be back at the bottom of the hill ready for you to try to roll up again. And you're gonna find that you're constantly oscillating. One day you feel good about yourself because you've actually got it like halfway up the hill and the next day you can't even move the thing and you're in despair. You're gonna find yourself constantly weaving between despair and, and, and pride. You're gonna constantly feel that you're in the futility of just the grinder of life because God is looking at us saying, it doesn't work. No amount of fame, no amount of accomplishment, no amount of your doing will ever patch together an appropriate presentability for you. Here's the other way we can take our justification questions. One way is to depend on your own work. Here is the other way we can go with this. We can take our justification questions and we can depend on the work of Jesus for us. Now that is what Romans 3 verses 24 and 25 are trying to show us. One way is self-justification. That's depending on your own works. The other way is grace justification. That's depending on the work of Jesus for you. And this is what Romans 3, 24 and 25 show. We are, we are justified. Now remember, this is in the light of we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Then verse 24, and are justified. We actually get that presentability back that we really want. We are justified, how? By his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, Paul is showing us that the cure for that deep ache in us for presentability, the cure for that is not by us doing our best. 
That will never cure the problem. The cure to our problem is realizing our best will never do it and Jesus' best will do it. Our best will never be enough and Jesus' best is enough. See, verses 24 and 25 really summarize the entire teaching of the Bible. Here's the storyline of the Bible in a nutshell. We have sinned against God. We have thrown the first punch at God. We have fired the first shot of, uh, you know, toward God. But rather than crushing us rebels, God pursues us in his grace by sending his son, Jesus, who lived perfectly for us, died on the cross in our place. On the cross, all of God's wrath for our sin came pouring down on Jesus, absolutely crushed him. That's that big word propitiation in verse 25. All of God's wrath gets exhausted onto Jesus. And then because of the resurrection, it's showing us that God is more powerful than Satan's sin and death. This is the storyline of the Bible, that in Jesus, the good news of Jesus is that God would treat us rebels like his son. For everyone who, who comes to Jesus in faith, he will treat us rebels like his son because he has treated his son like us rebels. This is justification. That God would rewrite the verdict over our life, not because we work for it, but because we depend on the work of Jesus for it. He will rewrite the verdict approved, acceptable. That deep longing in us to be fully known and yet fully loved, God is saying, I will freely give it to you in the person and work of Jesus. See, verses 24 and 25 are showing us the deal God's willing to make for all of us. Here's the deal. Look at me here. Here's the deal God's willing to make. God's looking at us and saying, do you know that inadequacy that you struggle with? Do you know that deep sense of nakedness that you feel deep in your bones? I'll take that from you. you, you let's make this trade. I'll take that from you. Open up your hands and give me that. Why don't you admit that to me? Open up your hands and let me have that. I'll take that deep sense of inadequacy. And here's what I will give you. I'll give you the adequacy of Jesus in return. I'll take all of your brokenness. I'll take all of your sin. I'll take all of the dirtiness in you. I'll take all of those things from you. I'll take all of those and I'll put those onto Jesus. And I will give you Jesus' perfect record of righteousness in place of that. H how about we make that deal? H how about you take that? How about you open up your hands? You stop working for it. You stop trying to do enough. And, and, and why don't you let me give you enough in Jesus? Why don't you let me give you what can actually cover that deep sense of unpresentability that you feel? How about we make that deal? That's justification. God's saying, not only will I pardon you, but I will give you the perfect record of Jesus so that now I will write over your life, accepted, approved, adopted, mine, son, received. I'll write that over your life. Okay, now let me finish with this. These are not just two cute ways of thinking about life. These are the only two ways of doing your life. These are the only two options you've got. Either you're going to depend on your work to patch up your presentability, or you are going to allow the work of Jesus to make you presentable. That are, those are the only two options. They're not just two ways of doing, you know, cute ways of thinking about life. They are like two separate religions. They are two separate ways of relating to God. And these are the only options you've got. See, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is defined by, you do your best and try hard enough and maybe you'll be acceptable to God. Christianity is defined like this. You lay down all your attempts to justify yourself and you receive Jesus' doing for you and you will be justified. That's Christianity. Let me put it in some simple statements for you. All other religions, this will be on the screen, all other religions say, if you are bad and if you're a bad and don't follow the rules, God will punish you. Christianity says this, you were bad and broke all the rules, but Jesus was perfect and took your punishment for you. Religion says, if you want a relationship with God, you'll have to fulfill all the qualifications, the X, Y, and Zs. Christianity says, you can have a relationship with God because Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single qualification for you. Religion says, if you want to please God, this is what you have to do. Christianity says, God is pleased with you because of what Jesus has already done for you. Religion says if you follow all the rules, you might be able to earn your way back to God. Christianity says the only way back, or the way back to God has already been earned for you in Jesus. Religion says I've been good, so I'm entitled to your blessing. 
Christianity says, Jesus has been good and secured for me blessing upon blessing. Religion says, I obey, I do, I work, I I patch together my righteousness, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Those are the only two options. You're, You're doing something right now with that deep sense of nakedness. Either you're depending on your works or this morning you get to open up your hands and depend on the work of Jesus for you. It's either you patch it together and like Madonna, you're gonna be insecure for the rest of your life knowing that it's just not working, that it's never enough. You can never do enough to make yourself presentable or you actually receive what God says is enough, namely the person and work of Jesus. And you get to become a secure person knowing that the deepest longing and ache of your heart is satisfied. Why don't you bow with me and pray? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you this morning and to press into you the things that would be most helpful and wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, for all of our differences in the room, it's amazing how we all have this thing in common. We all feel a sense of inadequacy, and we're all looking to something to cover it. And the invitation of Easter, and really the invitation of the Bible, the invitation of the good news of Jesus, is to turn from your work to cover it, because it just doesn't work. It's never enough to turn from your work to cover that deep sense of inadequacy and to turn to Jesus in his perfect work, his life, death, and resurrection for covering, to regain that sense of of approval and acceptance and presentability. Those are the only two options. And every one of us in the room are doing one of those two things. Our work or the work of Jesus. And what it means to become a Christian is that we turn from all of our working, secular working like Madonna where we just ignore God as we go about the work, religious working like the religious leaders and Pharisees and like many of us in the room who are doing a lot of very moral things, a lot of very good things in an attempt to patch together our sense of being okay. And what becoming a Christian means is we turn from all of our working, all of our striving, all of our doing, all of our attempts to regain that presentability. We lay them all down. We let them go out of our hands. And we turn to God and with the empty hands of faith, we come to Jesus and say, we need your work. We're going to trust in your work. We're going to throw our life upon your work. And you know what's so amazing about that? In that moment is when God addresses the deepest ache and longing of your heart. It's in that moment where God looks at us and says, you're no longer rejected. You're accepted. You're no longer sinner. You're now son. You're no longer out of my family. You're in my family. And I just can't help but thinking there's not a lot of us in here who right now trying to patch up our own righteousness, we're doing all sorts of things. I just can't help but think there's not a lot of us who this is your moment where you need to turn from all of your doing and you need to rest in what has been done. You need to throw your life upon what has been done for you. This is what the Bible calls faith. Like the way we approach God is through faith in Jesus, through faith in his work, not not on our own doing, but in faith in throwing our life upon the finished work of Jesus. And in the moment we do that, the moment we approach God in faith, not with our works, but with empty hands, 
nothing in our hands, nothing to look up to God and say, see, this is why I'm okay. Look at what I've done. Faith is the moment we let go of all of that and we come with empty hands saying, no, no, it's just what Jesus has done for me. That's my only hope. That's the only way I'll ever be right with you. It's the only way that deep sense of justification, that deep longing for it will ever be addressed in me, will ever be cured in me. And the great news of the gospel is that in that moment when we turn from our working and trust in the working of Jesus, God saves us. He rescues us. The verdict over our life changes. I mean, that needs to be some of us in the room right now. So if that's you, if you've never had that moment, make this your moment where you're looking up to God, praying right now, God, I am turning from my doing and I'm gonna trust in what's been done. I'm gonna trust in the finished work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. I'm gonna trust in that to make me right with you. And if your heart is crying that out to God right now, then the Bible says God will save you right now in this room. And if that's you, I wanna make sure you do one thing for me. If you'll take that card under your seat, fill that out, check that box on establishing a relationship with Jesus, we would love to know about that, to celebrate that. Don't leave here without letting someone know that moment just went down. That, that you have this watershed moment of I'm turning from my working and I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus for my presentability. And if you are in Christ in the room, you know, it's amazing how that need for justification and the justification that God offers to us in Jesus, that sense of being fully known and fully approved, that is a spring that we need to go to every day of our life. Because the old flesh in us keeps pulling us back into, no, I'm gonna patch up my presentability by what I do. And we need moments like this this morning to just yet again repent of all of our works righteousness, all of our attempts and, and tries of patching together our presentability, and we need to turn again from those things and, and yet again look up at Jesus and throw our life in faith upon him as the only one who can give us the presentability that we crave. So God, will you help us in this room right now? God, will you do this in this room right now? God, will you, will you not let us rest in this room right now as we're trying to, to patch together our own righteousness? God, will you keep us up at night? Will you haunt us with that sense of nakedness and that sense of inadequacy until we stop trying to cover it with our own works? And God, will you get us to the edge of the cliff and help us jump out in faith upon Jesus who has worked and done everything we need to be justified? God, would you do that right now in this room? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.